Hello and welcome to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. This is season two and I'm your host, Beverly Roche. On this season, I'll have some exciting guests talking about their experiences in cybersecurity, along with a four-part series on scams and fraud. Looking forward to you joining me for this season. My incredibly supportive colleagues, Jonathan and Jason, thank you at CyberAware are supporting my production for the podcast for the next few series, which is really kind of them. Hey, go check out their next-gen security awareness training at cyberaware.com. This morning on the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Shannon Sedgwick. Shannon has just been absolutely everywhere in relation to media speaking engagements around COVID safe. I was lucky enough to get him to chat on the podcast. Um, he's very, he considers himself very socially responsible as a cybersecurity leader. And I think that's really impressive. Very interesting guy to chat to. But before I go to the chat, I guess I wanted to wrap up contemporary thinking around where we are with COVID safe. And it's not the comprehensive list. I think there's kind of three categories at the moment. One is the ongoing issues in relation to handshaking and the upgrades that they need to do around getting the app actually working like it says it should. The other is the long tail, which is the life cycle issues in relation to what are they going to do with the data? We don't want them obviously to correlate the data with anything else. So we need some clear guidelines around the life cycle issues in relation to COVID safe. The other one, I think, of course, is the legislative issues, which the privacy form are really tackling very aggressively, and that's Malcolm Crompton and a whole raft of other people. They're looking after our interests in relation to the draft legislation and individual rights. The rest is lots of opinions. I think the general sentiment is... If it wasn't COVID safe app, should we trust the government? And this trust issue keeps coming back up. Today, about 5 million people have signed up. That's a vote of confidence that people understand how important it is socially and economically for us to start moving forward with the tracing app. So we're gonna jump to the discussion now with Shannon. Shannon Sedgwick, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. You have just been everywhere in the last couple of weeks on media, so I feel really privileged to have you on my little cybersecurity cafe podcast. Thank you. It's voices like yours that we kind of really need to hear because there's so much at the moment on COVID-19 and the app. We'll talk about that later. But I really wanted to talk about you first and how you got into cybersecurity. I had an interesting journey getting into cyber, actually. Uh, not the typical um, line that uh, most people take into cyber where they come from a uh, techie background. I uh, um, go way back, actually. I, um, I grew up in uh, country Victoria. Um, I was a dairy farmer first. And uh, many people don't know that about me, I, 
um, in in the past when I've applied for jobs, I've actually put my dairy agriculture qualifications in the resume just to see if they pick it up, even though it has no relevance to the the roles I work in now. But uh, after dairy farming, uh, and it certainly wasn't for me, I went to um, and joined the military. And I was in the army for uh, just on six years. And uh, after that, I left and I did uh, uh, private contracting work that was um, more along the lines of uh, protective security. Um, but during that time and then towards the end of my military career, I'd, um, I've always been fascinated by tech and a bit of a nerd. And um, I started uh, looking into cybersecurity um, after speaking with one of the, uh, the intelligence officers that um, I'd worked with in my unit. And it just fascinated me. It just captured me. And I, I started doing, um, I've always been a prolific reader. I, I read everything that I can get my hands on. Um, and I just read and I kept reading and reading and studying and doing online courses and uh, teaching myself. And um, and it, the fascination just grew. Anyway, I, I, um, I saw an opportunity um, after working as a contractor for a couple of years to build my own business, um, doing both um, cybersecurity and protective security. And um, after market research, I launched it in San Diego in the US. Um, and um, went quite well. Uh, landed some uh, fairly significant clients and ended up opening up our offices in uh, Sydney and Singapore. Fortunately, uh, we had good timing. We're a uh, larger risk management firm where I was, um, I knew the owners quite well. They made me an offer I couldn't refuse and bought me out completely. And at that time, I got headhunted by uh, Deloitte in Canberra to come in and lead and build their federal government cyber risk team and do the same thing I'd done with my own business and um, build it up rapidly and um, fantastic time there. We had a lot of success, built the team from two people to over 12 um, and had some big wins there too. Um, a great learning experience. And then I was brought into uh, Verizon, the global telecommunications firm to um, do the same for them. And then I um, was headhunted yet again into the role that I'm in now as Senior Managing Director at, at Ankara. Uh, I think it's important for um, me and for people that work with me, and, and I think it's important for everybody to have a purpose that goes beyond profits, because I think it helps not only um, the business and establish that brand of corporate, corporate social responsibility, but it also gives your staff a discretionary energy that they wouldn't otherwise have should they just be chasing revenue targets. It, it allows them to make a difference, not only to their clients, but in, with my intent is to make a difference in the community as well. Look, I think that's a great backstory. I think a lot of people in cyber, you know, there's 19 and a half plus now cybersecurity professionals. I think those values, most of us are, are really social do-gooders, you know, we want to be in it because we want to address problems that we see. And I think that lovely story that you took us through about, you know, finding an organisation that fits with you ethically and you, you just feel like you have a sense of purpose and belonging there, I think it's fantastic because for people coming into the industry, they you know, they can't be what they can't see. And I think when you start that journey out, that's always possibly in the back of your mind, but you know that you have to do the job that's in front of you first because you have to get that 
that that skills and maturity. So it's a great roadmap for people to listen to to hear about how you how you got there. I'm hearing you say you really love being, you like hands-on still, don't you? You really love getting down into the nitty-gritty. I think it's important for, um, you know, not just to be delegating work um, and to be seen not only by the staff that work with me, but um, for my own learning as well. I, um, I'm i always, uh, I'm my own worst critic, like a lot of people, and uh, I always, I've always had a little bit of imposter syndrome where uh, I don't feel like I know enough. So I've, I've, you know, I've never stopped studying and I've never stopped reading and uh, never stopped uh, trying to learn from people that are far more technically adept than I am. And um, I, I would never, ever claim to be someone that's uh, deeply technical or a, a technical expert. I think it's important that you know where your weaknesses are and, and, and try to patch them as, as much as you can. It's an ongoing learning experience. I think when you, th- when you think you know everything is when you really know nothing. Oh, and, and the more absolutely. I learn, the, the more I realise I don't know. So, <laughs> Seriously. And I think working, working directly on projects and being hands-on and getting down at, at um, the same level as, you know, even as the work that your grads are doing and showing that you're committed to, you know, not just you know, delegating and the uh, meeting with clients and having the, the high-flying dinners and coffees and marketing and business development and capital allocation, you know, the role of senior leadership, but, um, also, you know, getting stuck in and uh, helping write proposals and helping deliver work at our clients and uh, and staying up late writing reports and really throwing yourself into into the work and doing what uh, roles that you'd expect all of your team to do. And I think it, leading by example is is the only way to do that. And not only that, it's about keeping it real. Things change so much in our industry. If you're not talking to your ethical hackers, if you're not talking to people all the time about what their challenges are and how to translate that into something meaningful, there's a huge gap between what you thought you knew and what's really kind of going on, isn't there? Hey, um, moving on to the big picture right now, and that is all the commentary that you've put out there in the media around COVID-19. I saw something today that I just wanted to touch on before we leap into that. On the dark net, someone is selling blood vials to convince people, you know, this is just everything that's going on right now, blood vials that have apparently taken from people that have already had COVID-19 so that you can buy those blood vials and you'll build up the antigen, if you like, so that, you know, you'll get a lesser impact of it. So we've never seen cyber criminals so active They're just absolutely everywhere. So that kind of nice segue into the app and everything that's been written. So we've seen experts reverse engineer the app. You know, I think there's kind of a bigger issue here for you and I to discuss. I want you to tell our listeners what you know about the app so far. I think that's a great place to start and we can leap off that. Tell me what you've been telling the media. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a contentious issue, isn't it? Well, 
yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and and this is and this is just my personal opinion. I think it's important that everybody makes yeah. up makes up their own mind about this app and and whether the risk is worth the reward for them. But in my mind, the data that this app collects in order to be able to trace your proximity to other app users and store that data on your phone. And then if you get sick and you are tested and you prove positive with COVID, um, you're asked to enter into a code and yet again consent to the release of that um, database on your phone of who you've been in proximity to um, through Bluetooth tracking. Obviously, not doesn't track your location. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think uh, the app and its, and its benefits are, w- are well understood now. I think where a lot of the detraction comes from isn't from the security or the privacy of the app or its supporting controls or legislation at all. They're quite strong. It's, it's quite clear that this app was designed with privacy in mind, unlike the majority of apps, apps that we see. Um, mm. But the detractors largely come from a group that just don't trust the government. And I, I can see where they're coming from. The, the government doesn't have the best history of um, the use of our data or even just effective communication to the public, you know, with, uh, you know, the uh, data breach that wasn't um, of recent days uh, when it was just an, an overload of users on, uh, what was it? Was it the Centrelink website? Oh, yes. Um, yeah. And he, he called it a data breach and it wasn't, um, and which was really poor form and really damaged a lot of public trust in him as an individual. Um, and census, obviously, and, um, and the, the access bill. I think there's a lot of people that just off the back of the bushfires and, and at the beginning of that, Scott Morrison and his extremely poor performance and going on holiday when half of Australia is burning and the um, mistrust of the government is completely what's driving those who don't want to download this app. And I don't think um, facts and reason and the uh, very low value of the data that is being gleaned from this app matters at all to them. It's uh, it's a principle thing. It's difficult during these times and we have seen Australians and um, globally um, people around the world reacting emotionally to this pandemic and uh, without and do things without thinking and without reason. I prefer to make fact-based, reasonable decisions on a case-by-case basis. Would I uh, usually trust government with uh, all of my data and just give them free reign? Certainly not. Um, and uh, I'd be the first to call our government for for overreach. But in terms of this app, the uh, using you know your name um, and you can use a pseudonym, postcode, age range, and phone number. This is data that the government already has and has had on you probably since birth. Um, you know, if if you if if you vote at all, um, the electoral commissions have your data. Medicare, uh, the ATO, Centrelink. Uh, Department of Veterans Affairs, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, uh, they store this data and more. So in my mind, if the government wanted to act maliciously and, you know, there was a secret network of ASIO spies waiting to, you know, turn Australia into 1984 Orwell's nightmare, then um, I I think they would have done it already. Now, that's just my opinion and I... I certainly, uh, it's not meant as an insult to anybody that doesn't trust the government and won't download the app, but really I think it's, it's clear that, you know, and people are sick of this argument and I understand it's about mistrust of the government, but I just can't let this argument go is that 
these people are arguing about this app on Twitter. And if they've ever read Twitter's um, uh, privacy pol policy, there's not much privacy there at all. They can use your, their, your data however they work and they argue about it on Facebook and Instagram and without realising the hypocrisy of what it is that they're saying. So I think there's a couple of things there. The Orwellian concept a number of my colleagues have been talking about, they really see that from a safety of citizens perspective, it didn't appear that that the minds and the hearts were in, in that. And I think, you know, for some of us that have been around for a little bit longer, it kind of started with this idea of an Australia card. And there is something inherently in the Australian culture and psyche that a cohesive look at you as an individual in one place seems to bother everybody. Because if we were to correlate all the data, as you know, on everybody, boy, we'd have just, you know, we'd have absolutely everything on them. I'm not sure what that's about and I'm not a psychologist, but I think you and I both agree there is some issue here and we don't know what it stems from. I have a theory, actually. <laughs> I have a theory and, and it actually stems from, um, I think tall poppy syndrome is a real issue in Australia um, across all industries, really. Um, and we, I think Australians as a whole seem to relish cutting down those who rise above their perceived station in life. And it's strange after living in the US, um, I hadn't really seen that. Any, I haven't seen that anywhere else. Um, you know, I've travelled quite uh, widely um, globally and I've never seen it anywhere else but here. So we're cutting down experts? I, don't, I wouldn't say we're cutting down experts. I just think in general there is a tall poppy syndrome even in regards to the schoolyard or, or people uh, who... Mm. Um, you know, uh, succeed and they say something that's unpopular, Australians really enjoy cutting them down. You know, if I was an anthropologist, this would be a particular area of interest, and I'm not an expert, but this is just a theory, is, um, ties back to, you know, the genesis of, you know, white Australians coming to Australia um, and as convicts, as a majority, and uh, probably not the most enjoyable place to be, uh, you know, banished to, and then under the under the rule of, um, you know, the, the guards, almost like a prison colony, and um, that distrust of authority, um, I would say, probably went through generation after generation. I could make for another really mm. interesting podcast at another stage, because I think if there wasn't a health catastrophe going on around the world, we wouldn't see as many people signing up in Australia for this app. And and that's a problem. And we don't know how to address that because we know, because really, really the message I want to give people is we need you to sign up for it. But there's still these barriers for people to do that. And we want to help people navigate their way through those barriers. And the real crux of the matter is people are concerned about the life cycle. So we've still got kind of three unanswered questions, I think. So, you know, let's talk through those. And one is when do they and who decides 
the host application has finished its purpose. We want some, in the meantime, some sort of assurances around you're not going to correlate this data or use whatever you've got, we don't care what it is, for any other purposes except for COVID-19. And that doesn't mean other research associated with that. Yeah. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think they're both fair concerns, particularly the first um, around the life cycle and the data retention and um, how long until this app is deleted. And you know, I, I too have one question around the terminology they used of when the coronavirus ends. But, when, you know, who, what is the definition of coronavirus ending? Is it going to stay around for our, our lifetime like the flu and come back each year or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not fully aware of how this, this virus, um, you know, propagates through, through, uh, through society. So uh, uh, whether it just dies out and we never see it again, or if a, a vaccine is, is made, um, hopefully that happens. But I, yeah, it's, it's a very open-ended um, statement and I would have thought they'd answered it by now, to be honest. And, you know, if we want the adoption rates, have you had a look at the adoption rates today? No, not today. Last I heard it was over, it was about 3.2 million, I heard. Yeah, I think it's up about 3.8. And so that's a very slow adoption rate, much slower than an IT transformation project called (laughs) COVID-19. Do you know what I'm saying? So... So we do want to help the government. We also want to help the government understand that there are some gaps in how they talk to us, not only us experts in cybersecurity that are responsible for protecting people's data and making them secure, but how they talk to the general population about sharing their data and what they do with their data. And I think the common person in the street understands what they're doing when they sign up for Facebook and what they're doing when they sign up for Twitter because the reward is greater. They're doing it. (laughs) You know, there's rewards there. They stay connected to people. They buy stuff online. They get feeds. They they get, you know, it's kind of, look, there's no question I say to, you know, lots of people, they're quite rich experiences, some of these platforms, and Julian Mangrant is doing a great job of getting that cohesive global strategy with those platforms, the owners of those platforms. She's just, you know, she's unstoppable and has an amazing team behind her working with those platforms to take down material, right? Um, so we... That's an overtime, you know, it's not perfect. But I think one of the things that we either need to be able to do is offer some level of assurance to average Australians that it's in everybody's best interests to get on board, even though we have some unanswered questions. So I'm for, I'm pro, but But I still have these questions that I really hope that people like you and I can keep prodding, uh, to your point, get the cattle prod out and and keep, because I used to be a beef farmer, so we've got a a bit in common there, used to do paddock to plate beef farming in the Otways and um, 
you know, those things give you real world experiences. You're really grounded when you've had those sort of experiences. But, you know, this is kind of really, we just want some tangible evidence. Talk to us, show us, you know, give us something definitive. And we want to keep that, keep that kind of battle going, right, until we get some answers on that. Yeah, and I think you, I think you hit right on the head on the, uh, the nail on the head with uh, around the government's communication. They have been extremely poor with it in regards to this app. And I think Scott Morrison's comments around, oh, "I don't want to have to force people to download this app," was just uh, did them no. Uh, it was not of help to them at all. That was it's still being used against them, even up until now. I, I think that was a, a mistake for him to say that. And I think around this app, uh, it's important for the government's communication to be at the public's level. To stop with the politicians' answers and the, um, you know, the one-line answers that they're rolling out across all of the, you know, the, say the Liberal Party and the, you know anyone who's in support of it are saying the exact same thing and not answering questions directly. You know, uh, you look at basic psychology, the, pr- the pratfall effect. Um, when people own up to their mistakes and they make mistakes, people are more <laughs> likely going to like them and trust them. So I, I think government could oh, take yeah. a, a leaf out of, of that book and, and really just admit their mistakes and say, listen, we, our performance with your data and data privacy hasn't been the best in the past but we've reviewed what the concerns are right now and these are the answers that we have for you right now. If uh, still missing controls or still missing explanations, let us know via this portal or this link, you know, have a survey done and take that feedback into account. We haven't seen that consultation and, um, you know, we just need Norman Swan. You know, we need Norman Swan to tell us because we don't need it to be political. We yep. just need someone intelligent like Norman Swan to say, he wasn't he just brilliant? And I just don't know how he just didn't get plucked as the figurehead because he's intelligent, he's articulate, and he just tells it in a way, story tells it in a way that it really people relate to. You know, my vote was very early on, why don't we get Norman Swan telling us, A, he did a brilliant job of telling us what the COVID virus was going to do to us. And, do you know, have someone like him, it doesn't need to be the politicians, because I think there is so much mistrust around fake news and all sorts of other stuff. You know, we're getting in deep here. I think we kind of need to... (laughs) We're not going to solve any of these issues today. No, no, I don't think we're going to solve it on this this podcast. It probably comes from sitting on a tractor going, oh, I've really got these big problems to solve here. Yeah. Yeah, contemplating life and solving none of them. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, we want to keep that battle up. So moving on, what what advice do you give to um, people coming into the profession, into the cybersecurity profession? I speak to a lot of um, undergrads and even postgrads about this. Um, I think it's important that you understand that everybody has a role to play in cybersecurity, whether you're technical or non-technical or where, wherever you want to focus. And it doesn't matter if you don't have a IT background. Um, you know, I've seen 
great cybersecurity professionals come from law firms and, uh, you know, anthropology backgrounds. And, and really, if you're just curious about cybersecurity. And defence. Yeah, and defence. You know. Uh, like myself, yeah, and, uh, or da- dairy farmers. <laughs> and dairy farmers and law enforcement. You know? And isn't that just about diversity of thought? Yes, Exactly. The same principle that we preach on, on boards. Uh, you know, we need a diversity of thought and to be able to consider the problems that we face from multiple angles where groupthink is a large problem. Um, and I think we get, uh, I think that there's, some, there's some very uh, skilled uh, people in our industry, particularly in Australia, we've got brilliant people, but they can be quite intimidating to new joiners that were, you know, may, may have a difference of opinion or a different way to tackle it. And I think being open to different opinions and being accepting of differing views is extremely important. It's not us versus them. It's not technical versus non-technical or generalist versus, you know, um, uh, engineers or anything like that. I think that we need to all understand that we're in this together. But I, I, I would say as well, uh, I would encourage new grads and and people coming into the profession, um, regardless of whether they've got a, a university degree in this area or not, is to be quite specific in what what area of cybersecurity you want to work in. Um, you have a lot of vendors these days who. Um, you know, sell this end-to-end offering where experts and everything. And I think we'll soon see the industry moving towards um, a company's point of differentiation being the specificity of their services and how deep the, uh, and their depth of expertise in very uh, specific and, and a narrow area rather than being um, purporting to have that one-stop shop. Yeah, that's a beautiful summary. Thank you. How do people get in touch with you? I'm on LinkedIn mostly. I'm, I'm quite active there, but I, I am a, uh, a, a noob uh, Twitter user and I have been uh, lurking around on Discord, although I still haven't worked it out at all. Um, so I've just been trying to learn from people on that. But you can reach out to me on Twitter at, um, at uh, Shannon Sedgwick and same for my LinkedIn and uh also my personal website, ssedgwick.com. Um, I do some writing on there and previous media appearances are there. If anybody wants to, this isn't sick of seeing my my head or hearing hearing me talk. But um. <laughs> <laughs> no, we no, we need you. You know, we need industry people like yourself to be out there voicing opinions because we need more collaboration and more discussion about the big issues. And it shouldn't be one person talking about that. It should be a collective, you know, it's the same thing that we need, diversity of thought to solve the bigger problem. Shannon, thank you so much for your time today. It was such a pleasure having you. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me, Beverly. It was great. Here's two little farmers. (laughs) (laughs) And where we are now. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter or all the W's, cybersecuritycafe.com.au.